0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Crossroad, today with a message entitled, The Controversial Christ. So, turn in your Bibles to John, chapter 7, verses 40 to 52, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I don't claim to know all the reasons why Jesus produces such strong reactions in people. I just know that he does. I mean, consider the evidence. I mean, first of all, Jesus is the only religious leader that I know of whose name is regularly used to curse. I mean, why do you suppose that is? Or introduce the name of Jesus into polite society and and watch the pained expression on people's faces. It's not like they they feel the same way just simply about religion. I mean, you can tell them you just got involved in Buddhism or Hinduism or some form of esoteric meditation and even tell them of your involvement in some project in your local church. And Well, many people will try to understand, but tell them that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, and then there's this pain silence in the conversation. Look, I'm not suggesting that, you know, Christians should try to be offensive when we talk about Jesus. I mean, we should try to be kind. And I'm just noting, however, that Jesus produces strong reactions in people. And And what do we make of that? Well, Jesus himself was not surprised by it. Indeed, he indicated that he not only was controversial, but that he had come to bring controversy. Did you know that? Well, he did. Listen to his words in Matthew 10:34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, in our ongoing study of John 7, we saw that Jesus made all of humanity an offer. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Or if anyone is dissatisfied with life, just come to me. I will satisfy you to such a degree that rivers of satisfaction will flow from you, and you will never be dissatisfied with life after that. I mean, why in the world would that be controversial? And yet, it is. Now, perhaps I can understand that in his day, but in our day, it seems really confusing to me. I mean, we live in a day of mass advertising. Advertisers tell us that Coke and Pepsi can satisfy, but they don't. And please don't think I'm, I'm speaking against these products. And I mean, if you like them, I mean, go ahead, drink them. But how could there be such a mystique around bubbly flavored sugar water? I mean, why aren't those preposterous claims controversial? But Jesus remains controversial. And we're going to learn some of the reasons for that. So let's get our Bible, John 7, 40 to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now let's begin by noticing what brought this controversy. I mean, Jesus has just spoken at the Jewish Feast of Booths and once he was finished, we noticed something vital. Everyone doesn't go home and say, well, good sermon pastor, rather his message produces division. I mean, it always did. Everyone was talking about it and getting into heated arguments and fascinatingly enough, the division he produced is still the division he produces now. Now in this incident, Jesus actually divides people into three groups. Let's have a look at what happened. According to verse 40, some people concluded that Jesus must be the prophet. So when they said that, what do they think? Well, they're referring to something found in Deuteronomy 18, 15. It's Moses speaking, and it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Then later in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, God repeats the same words to Moses. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, I know that when Christians today read those verses, we immediately assume that's a prophecy of the Messiah. But interestingly enough, when the Jews in that day read that prophecy, they thought it referred to the forerunner of the Messiah. I mean, they pointed to Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, they believed a prophet like Elijah would come in the last days and he would introduce the Messiah. So when they said he was the prophet, I think they were saying, we think he's the end times forerunner of the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. Now, something needs to be said about this first group. I mean, we have to remember that Jesus has just said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. I'm the source of the world's satisfaction. And this first group doesn't seem to respond by saying, I don't believe it. They simply respond by saying, ah, that's the prophet. And you want to say, well, you guys even been listening to what he's been saying? But they have, except they've chosen to hear only what they want to hear. They accept what pleases them and they reject the rest. And really, that parallels our day. You know, there are still today a great many people who say, I will accept a portion of the claims of Jesus, but not all of them. You know, I watched a video some time ago and a person with a camera and a mic was simply asking people on the street who Jesus was. And most of them had a very positive answer. They said things like, he was a good man and a great teacher. In fact, one woman being interviewed said he was a great environmentalist. And I found that fascinating. Now, I believe that anyone should have the right to believe what they want. That's not the issue. But think of the contradiction. For instance, if you just pay attention to all the things that Jesus said in chapter 7 alone, well, he undercuts all these happy beliefs that so many people entertain of him. I mean, later on, he was to say that he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one came to the Father but through him. No, no, it just won't do. You see, calling him one of the prophets or even the prophet or a good man, I mean, all of that's nonsense. I mean, to call him anything like that is the same as rejecting him. And so if that's you, I mean, you have an admiration for Jesus, but you won't worship him as Lord and God, you're actually rejecting him. And that's the first group. Now we come to the second group, and these are the people who completely believe him. Look at verse 41. It says, others said he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. They believe his claims. They're on his side. They're unable to defend this belief, but they're quickly shot down by a third group, and the third group are those who completely reject him. I mean, they point out that the scripture says that the Messiah does not come from Galilee, but from Bethlehem. You can almost imagine John, who's telling us this story, has a little twinkle in his eye. The group that rejects him, well, they haven't even bothered to do their research. They've simply gone on secondhand accounts and prejudice. And I do find it fascinating to think today of those who often reject Jesus for the same reasons. Many people today do so without checking the evidence. You know, I remember once having a conversation with a man who told me in a matter-of-fact way that as a scholar, he knew that it was doubtful whether Jesus ever existed. It sounds like the same as the crowd at the Temple of Booths. I mean, if you're one of those, let me challenge you. Make a commitment. Say to yourself, I will not reject Jesus until I check it out myself. You might want to pick up a book like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. You know, Strobel was an atheist who was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ after checking the evidence. And in his book, he uses his skills as an investigative journalist, and he interviews a dozen experts with doctorates from schools like Cambridge and Princeton who are recognized authorities in their fields. And he asks them questions like, how reliable is the New Testament? Or does the evidence for Jesus exist outside of the Bible? Is there a reason to believe the resurrection was an actual event? Or is there a case for Christ? And if you're a skeptic, I mean, I appeal to you not to reject Jesus out of hand. Don't let secondhand prejudice stop you from examining the truth for yourself. Don't go by what others say. I challenge you, check out the positive evidence for Christ and you may find something that you never expected was actually there. So here we have three groups, one group believes, One group says positive things and doesn't believe, and a third group says negative things and doesn't believe. And I would think that division is exactly like the division today. And Jesus divides people into three groups, but that's not all he does. So you want to stay with me because the rest of the passage really becomes fascinating.
0: Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift, Finding Pleasure with God, To the King and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: You know, Jesus not only divided people into three groups, but as we look closely at the text, we're going to see that he divided them more deeply than we ever realized. And in verses 43 to 44, we read of the division among the people and that some desperately wanted to arrest him. Just to get the picture here, look back at verse 30. And there we read, they wanted to arrest him then, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, verse 30 happens in the middle of the feast, so verse 44 must happen you know, about three to four days later. And you have to imagine the scene. The Jewish religious leaders are hatching a plot to murder Jesus. So they get the temple police to agree to arrest him. And this is such an important part of this story. You have to know who the temple police were. They were not thugs who could be hired for money who simply got rid of someone and no one asked questions. No, the temple police were men who would have been drawn from the Levites. They were from the priestly class of people. They were theologically trained and they knew the Old Testament very well. And they were well-versed in the various rabbis and their teachings. You know, It was felt in that day that only this kind of person could even be equipped to guard the worship of the temple. Now, for three to four days, they'd been hanging around Jesus and they'd been given orders from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to arrest Jesus when the time was right. So for three days, they're watching him. And for three to four days, they're forced to listen to him. And after three to four days, they fail to arrest him. And why? Well, one reason has already been given earlier in the chapter. Verse 30 told us that his time had not yet come. In other words, it was the Father's will, that the Son should not die during the Feast of Booths, but during the Feast of the Passover. Jesus would be the Passover lamb that was slain so that the angel of death would be removed. And that tells you from a grand theological perspective why Jesus was not arrested during the Feast of Booths. But it's now three to four days later, and these theologically trained temple guards who are forced to follow Jesus around and listen to him are being torn apart from the inside. I mean, they're listening to words unlike anything they've ever heard before all of their theological training. So now think of it. They could have gone back to the Pharisees and said, look, I mean, we didn't arrest Jesus because, you know, the whole time there was a crowd around him, and we just couldn't get it done without touching off a riot. And, well, that's probably true. And I have no doubt that they would have gotten away with that kind of an answer. But look, that's not what they say. They just confronted the Pharisees and said, look, we decided not to, because this is a remarkable man. No one we've ever heard speaks this way. Now, remember, I said that Jesus divides people more deeply than we realize. Well, he does. He even managed to divide the elite guard, something no Pharisee would ever have dreamt should happen. And that's because, listen, no one is safe in Jesus' presence. I remember a number of years ago, an individual came to the church I was then pastoring, and he told me openly what he had come to do. He said he was raised in a Christian home. He'd been in youth group growing up and had even served at World Vision for a time. But for some reason, I don't know what it was, but he decided he hated God and he hated the Christian church. And he had recently begun living with a woman and he wanted to bring her to church so that he could ridicule the faith, the church, and everything in the Bible. Well, as so often happens, that girlfriend gave her life to Christ. Now, that's something he never saw coming. I also know a husband and a wife who raised their three kids to hate the Christian faith and were constantly mocking it. All three kids now are in Christ. And that's the problem with Jesus. You can oppose him, but he might win your best friend or your wife or your husband or your children or your parents, and that's precisely the reason he's so controversial. No one ever spoke the way he does. Now, the Pharisees are extremely threatened by this. Their plan to murder Jesus has just failed because the temple police decided not to arrest him, and they were threatened. See, these guys seem more impressed by Jesus than with the Pharisees, and so the Pharisees respond. And if you look at verses 47 to 49, well, the Pharisees are furious, and they ask, which group do you belong to? Are you theologians? Then you shouldn't believe this guy. Maybe you're just an uneducated, gullible person, just like the rest of this crowd. Now, the word crowd, that's an important word. The Pharisees liked the phrase, the people of the land. By that, they meant the ignorant, the untrained, the gullible, the stupid. This was a show of contempt for common people. And Pharisees thought of themselves as the educated elite. And what do ordinary people know anyway? I find that attitude troublesome today. You just can't get to the truth if you're not humble. I don't care if you're a grade 10 dropout or you're a PhD. You were created in God's image and respect is due. But the elites despise the common people. And then, just as the Pharisees are accusing the officers of being second-rate theologians, much like the rabble, that none of them, the important people, have believed in them, it's right then that one of their own people speaks up. Look at verses 50 to 52. Nicodemus comes forward, yeah? That's the same Nicodemus we met all the way back in John chapter 3. The man who came to Jesus by night, and the man whom Jesus explained that he needed to be born again if he were to see the kingdom of heaven. And we'll meet him again in John chapter 19. There we meet him as that brave man who steps forward to take Jesus' broken body from the cross and move it to the tomb. But at this time, right here, he simply asks, should we condemn this man without getting a thorough analysis of the evidence that is before us? So, can you see how things are really getting out of control now? No one, not even the Pharisee, is safe from Jesus. He will leave no one untouched, and they're furious. And they tell Nicodemus to do some research. No prophet has ever come from Galilee. Well, well. in fact, they're wrong. Jonah came from Galilee, so did Nahum. And so did Hosea. I mean, here again is an irony. They're accusing Nicodemus of being ignorant, but look, who is it that hasn't checked the facts? Now remember, I've said that there's always a controversy about Jesus. But now let's ask another question. How can Christians respond properly to a controversy with grace and wisdom? And what I want to now do with the remaining time that I have is to take a page from Nicodemus' book on how to respond to accusations with grace. Look at how Nicodemus responds. He could have said, you guys off your rocker? And then he would have started a quarrel. But he was masterful. He doesn't make a statement. He asks the question, can we condemn a man without a fair hearing? It's a classic line. Exodus 23 verse 1, Deuteronomy 1.16. I mean, these texts set out legal requirements for accusations. In effect, Nicodemus is just establishing a point of order. How does the law of God tell us to act at this moment? It's a classic question. Now let's make an application. You know, many of you who are listening to me work in environments where there's profanity constantly, and a number of people use the name of Jesus in that way. Maybe even your boss does. Some of you have been to spiritual conferences that were mandated for you by your workplace, and they opened the door to anything but Christ. Some of you are in university where your professors warn you about hate language regarding any single minority, and then, Turn around and mock Christians as buffoons and idiots. What do you do? Well, maybe you should take a page from Nicodemus' playbook. Learn to raise questions rather than offer judgment. You know, a well-timed question is extremely effective. If you're in a university class, why not ask the question? How do you understand hate against minority groups? Could you explain that? Would that include ridicule of a person's spiritual beliefs or even commitment to Jesus? And then just let that question hang in the air. And then learn to reply with grace, while others reply with anger. You know, Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it is fascinating to contrast the difference between Nicodemus and his colleagues. It's a contrast between rage and composure. So, ask the Holy Spirit to make you a person of composure. It's remarkably strong to be that. And one more item. Like Nicodemus, you don't have to answer all the charges. Look again at verse 52. Are you from Galilee, they ask condescendingly? Look into it. Clearly you haven't. No prophet comes from Galilee, they say. Now, I know that's silly. Now, how can these scholars make such a foolish mistake? Well, they made it because they were angry and anger produces mistakes. And Nicodemus, for his part, could have pounced on that. He could have made mincemeat of them, but he chooses not to. After all, why should he? The point has been made, and he will be content to allow his point to hang in the air. So Jesus continues to be controversial. People still curse by his name. Some will reject him for all the wrong reasons. Some will call him a prophet and a teacher, and they're going to deny his claim to be God in human flesh. But he will still steal away the children of nonbelievers, and he will still be a threat to many. And all of that's true but I would have each one of us let the controversy surround Jesus. Don't make it about yourself. Let us be gentle. Let us be wise. Let us learn how to ask significant questions, and in the process, let the conversation be about Jesus. And in such way, let him receive all the glory.
0: I think this is such an interesting study of Nicodemus because there are so many contrasts going on between him and the Pharisees. And, and you know, he would ask questions, clarifying questions. I think he knew the answer to those questions yeah. because he knew the Word. He knew what he was talking about, and he was prepared. Uh, he was composed. The others were getting all excited, I'm sure. But, but it really is uh, uh, an interesting study in this man and what we can learn from him.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how... Um, I feel like I have so much to learn from him. You know, when the, when the heat goes up and it becomes very testy in a conversation and people are making easy accusations and uh, you know, <laughs> usually in an environment like that, there's almost nothing to learn other than, let's dial it down, boys, um, Nicodemus gives us an example of what gentleness and yet clear, articulate questions that need to be answered are all about. So, you know, I think, Ben, there's so much to learn from that man. And uh, Jesus, of course, as I've said, continues to be controversial, but God's people can learn to be calm in the midst of the controversy.
0: Thanks so much, John. A great word. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth In Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth In Life Today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 12.30 Eastern or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And send us an email at info at to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today, or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca.